0: The International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer held their World Congress in Lung Cancer in Vienna, Austria, on the 6th to the 9th of August, 2022. The Congress brought together leading experts in lung cancer from around the world to hear practice-changing trial updates and discuss the best ways to improve lung cancer care for patients. We spoke to many wonderful speakers throughout the meeting, and we've rounded up some of our top editorial picks for you to listen to. To start us off, let's hear from Dr Rachel Murray from Leeds Cancer Centre in the UK as she discusses the results of the Yorkshire Enhanced Stop Smoking Study.
1: So the study was designed to look at the effect of adding a co-located and personalised stop smoking intervention to a lung cancer screening programme. Um, It's funded by Yorkshire Cancer Research and it's nested within the Yorkshire Lung Screening Trial, um, which is a big study looking at outcomes in the UK. Um, So we were set up so that every eligible smoker who attended for lung cancer screening would be offered an immediate consultation with the Stop Smoking advisor. Um, We did this on an opt-out basis, so that basically unless people specifically refused to come and see us, they would come and have the initial consultation and then make a decision if they were going to proceed with um, Stop Smoking support. So we offered um, behavioural support, so a one-to-one counselling session, um, and that was accompanied by pharmacotherapy, so nicotine replacement therapy, um, and or e-cigarettes and vaping supplies. Or if people preferred, we'd refer them back to their general practitioner for varenicline or bupropion drugs. Um, So we conducted this with everybody, um, and everyone that was willing got the same treatment for the first four weeks. Um, At four weeks, we saw everybody back again, we measured their smoking status, and if they'd quit smoking, then we used something called carbon monoxide validation um, to to validate and prove that they'd successfully quit, Um, and at that point, we offered enrolment into the yes study. Um, So, if people consented, they either entered the usual care arm, which was the same support that they'd already had for another eight weeks, so 12 weeks in total and our intervention group got exactly the same support as the usual care but in addition we used our personalised intervention and that contained images taken from their CT scan, so images of their heart and images of their lungs uh, accompanied by scripted advice from the smoking cessation practitioner and then we followed everybody up at three months and twelve months, collected smoking status, um, psychological change variables and quality of life and healthcare usage. So that was our, our kind of methodology.
0: Professor Sanjay Popat from the Royal Marsden NHS Foundation Trust in London gave us an overview of the Phase 3 CalGB140503 trial, which investigated sub versus low bar resection in patients with non-small cell lung cancer.
2: One of the other highlights uh, of this meeting was really looking at the surgical uh, space. We had an excellent uh, presentation uh, about the CALGB study, which looked at the role of sublobar resections or wedge excisions in patients with stage 1, early stage non-small cell lung cancer, demonstrating non-inferiority for sublobar and wedge excisions in patients that were pathologically node negative. Uh, And both uh, relapsary survival and overall survival were not uh, uh, deteriorated by uh, a lesser Uh, surgical intention rather than uh, lobectomy. I think this taken in the context of the previously published Japanese study has a lot of implications for the UK practice. It really does reinforce the previous Japanese data that we're not doing a disservice to our patients potentially with sublobar resections or wedge excisions. But in the case of the CLGB study, these patients had to be pathologically verified to be node negative at time of surgery. So if we are going to be pursuing this strategy, we do need to make sure that our patients have either intraoperatively or preoperatively been pathologically verified to be node negative prior to undertaking this lesser form of surgery, uh, which also has the additional benefit of sparing lung capacity, uh, which allows a potentially uh, multi-modality approach or additional approach should patients unfortunately require additional treatments in the future.
0: Professor Martin Reck from the Lung Clinic Grosshandsdorf gave us a thorough overview of some of the key trials presented at the Congress, including Javelin, Primus, nint Empower 10 and NADIM.
3: I would like to a little bit the, the journey of immunotherapy across lung cancer. So, one of the trials which I have had the privilege to present here is the Javelin 100 trial, investigating a monotherapy with the anti-PD1 antibody, avelumab, against platinum-based chemotherapy. A very large trial, more than 1,200 patients were randomized between. Avelumab. We had two arms, one high dose arm, one conventional dose arm platinum platinum-based chemotherapy compared to chemotherapy alone. The primary endpoint was the progression-free survival and the overall survival in the group of patients with high PD-1 expression. There was a signal of efficacy favoring the avilumab monotherapy. Unfortunately, this trial didn't reach statistical significance. And currently, we are evaluating these outcomes. Currently, some reason lies in the changing landscape of immunotherapy in patients with non-small cell lung cancer. We have an uptake of immunotherapy also at later lines of therapy. This might have contributed to the outcomes. Well, the next point is to look at something which is behind the first line. This is the maintenance. and We performed a small trial in Germany, the PRIMUS trial, investigating a maintenance with pembrolizumab compared to placebo in patients with squamous cell carcinoma who had received a first-line chemotherapy. Unfortunately, we had to close the trial due to slow accrual, but there was a clear signal in efficacy favoring this maintenance treatment with pembrolizumab. And there's also another important question. This is the question of re-exposition of checkpoint inhibitors who are re- progressing after the maintenance therapy with a checkpoint inhibitor. And there, we had a very interesting paper here in Vienna, summarizing. All the second course, the re-exposition data for patients in the keynote trials. These were roughly 60 patients and we were looking on the activity of this re-exposition with pembrolizumab. And we had two cohorts. One was the cohort of patients who had received a monotherapy with pembrolizumab for two years, then the follow-up and then the re-exposition at time of progression. And we also had a small group of patients who had received the combination of pembrolizumab with chemotherapy followed by the maintenance of two years, the follow-up and then the pembrolizumab as a second cause. What we do see is that there is a signal of clinical efficacy. We have a response rate of roughly 20 percent, but we do see a significant stabilization of the disease. And we do see so far a six-month overall survival rate, which is in the range of 85 percent. And I think this is a great signal for a re-exposition of Pembrolizumab. Moving along with the journey, the next step is the resistance after immunotherapy and this is a difficult area. We are currently conducting several trials. We have done a small trial in Germany evaluating the combination of nintetanib which is an anti-angiogenic oral agent with nivolumab as a checkpoint inhibitor. And interestingly, very similar to the data from Karen Reckamp from the MAPS trial, we have seen not so much activity in terms of response of progression-free survival, but we have seen a median overall survival of more than 12 months. And we still have 5 patients on treatment. So there is something ongoing for this addition of anti-angiogenesis to checkpoint blockade and this is something to follow up. Lastly, I would like to talk about early stages of lung cancer and there we had two major data sets presented here in Vienna. Number one was an update on the IMPOWER-10, the Ativan trial, investigating atezolizumab in resected patients following Ativan chemotherapy and Enriqueta. Philippe presented the overall survival data and interim analysis. And we have seen in the trial population, the PD-1 positive patients a significant improvement in overall survival, favoring the Ativan therapy with atezolizumab. And furthermore, when we look on the indication, which is labeled in Europe, these are the patients with high PD-1 expression. There was really a
2: remarkable
3: benefit in overall survival, corresponding to a hazard ratio of 0.43. And lastly, uh, a study from Spain was presented. This was an update, the NADM 2 trial, investigating a neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy compared to neoadjuvant chemotherapy in patients with stage 3 non-small cell lung cancer. And Dr. Provencio reported the progression-free survival and the overall survival data for this trial. And similar to the primary outcomes in pathological response and event-free survival, there was also a significant prolongation of progression-free survival and overall survival in favor of those patients who had received the neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy. So we have a bunch of new data, and I think immunotherapy really has conquered lung cancer. Now we are trying to explore whom to treat, when to treat, and how long to treat. Thank you.
0: We also heard from Dr. David Baldwin of Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust about the impact of COVID on lung cancer care and how the effects can be mitigated.
4: I've given a, a, a few presentations on the impact of, of COVID. Um, the presentation is a funny presentation because it describes really quite a devastating impact on what, on, on how uh, what COVID has has on lung cancer. So it's a really quite sad sad presentation in some ways, but at the same time it's positive because. This whole process of what happened during COVID has shown us that what we were doing and doing quite well with before COVID, we just need to do more of to to, uh, uh, mitigate the impact and recover from what we're doing. Essentially what happened when we locked down services is we turned off early diagnosis activity in general, and in particular presentation of patients when they got symptoms, the necessary message to control the pandemic was stay at home if you have a cough and the problem was that people did that, they really did obey, they were fearful um, and they just didn't go and see their general practitioners. And as a result of that, we saw a 30% reduction in the number of people that were diagnosed with lung cancer which did not recover, which means sadly they died without even getting a diagnosis. In fact, some of them may have even been labelled as Covid, who knows, but they weren't diagnosed with lung cancer and there's been no, no recovery. We still don't see a full recovery in the number of urgent referrals for suspected lung cancer even now. So a long way to go to change things. Before the pandemic we were doing quite well. We got a screening program going, we got early diagnosis initiatives and awareness campaigns, and this is a sort of natural experiment. Turn off that and this has a devastating effect. We saw a reduction in survival, we saw a reduction in resection rates, reduction in all treatments. It really did take us back 20 years ago all the progress we've made in survival in 20 years was undone. So what we're doing now is we're really going back for it again, we're we're redoubling our efforts on the screening programme, we're thinking about new ways of trying to get awareness and early presentation uh, improved, so there's the Roy Castle Lung Foundation, Spot the Difference campaign, a number of other documents that have encouraged awareness and early diagnosis and some national initiatives on this in the UK. And then also at the same time, we're thinking about the primary care backlog. In the UK, we have to go through a primary care practitioner or an emergency route uh, to get to uh, our uh, lung cancer teams in the secondary care sector. And at the moment, people are using the emergency route quite a lot, and that's always a delayed route and it's always bad outcomes. So we're thinking of things like a cancer concern hotline, where awareness campaigns are linked to a number. You phone the number, you, you speak to someone quickly and easily, They triage you on the basis of an algorithm, and then you go straight to a CT scan if you're at high risk. This is a way, I think, of getting patients that find it usually difficult to access primary care services straight into our services, and that's one of the things that I'm trying to push at the moment.
0: To wrap things up, Professor Popat took us through his highlights from the meeting.
2: So the highlights of this meeting here in uh, Vienna are many. Uh, One of the highlights for me, I think, has been the uh, molecular oncology uh, oral presentation looking at uh, KRAS Uh, mutant non-small cell lung cancer. And uh, here we heard new data on combination of the Revolution Medicine's SHIP inhibitor together with Cetaracib, demonstrating that it can be combined relatively safely with no uh, apparent maximum tolerated dose and very, uh, on the face of it, uh, controllable uh, low-grade adverse events with some evidence of efficacy, even in patients that have been previously uh, treated. I think we need to keep an eye uh, on that space. But importantly, we had data on combining Cetaracib with either Pembrolizumab or atezolizumab. This seems to be a difficult combination, and we've previously reported on significant liver adverse events uh, in patients that have been previously I.O. pretreated uh, who then receive Cetaracib. Uh, however, uh, investigators with Amgen were able to identify that the combination does have liver toxicities, but dose-reducing Cetaracib reduces the extent of the liver toxicities and a combination of dose reduction together with run-in monotherapy with sotiracib after combination therapy can mitigate against some of the problems identified with ALT rises. And so we look forward to seeing how this combination is then further developed and more data uh, coming through on this uh, particular combination.
0: That concludes our highlights in lung cancer from WCLC 2022. We have loads more interviews with experts in lung cancer and beyond on vjoncology.com, so why not explore? If you enjoyed this podcast, then you can subscribe on your favourite podcast app, including Spotify and Apple, to make sure you don't miss an episode. And follow us on Twitter for all the latest updates in oncology. Stay tuned for more podcasts from VJ Oncology.